Welcome everyone to Staying Connected, the German Embassy's podcast. My name is Oliver Moody and I'm the Berlin correspondent for the Times and Sunday Times newspapers covering Germany as well as Scandinavia and Central and Eastern Europe. And with me today, I am delighted to have Jürgen Kraus, a German software engineer and musician who's been living in Brighton for nearly two decades now. But uh, much more importantly for today's purposes, he was one of the most charismatic and technically gifted contestants on last year's season of The Great British Bake Off. Jürgen was named the star baker three times in the series, but was unexpectedly, some might even say unwarrantedly, eliminated just before the final. But he was very much the Becker der Herzen, the baker of hearts. I've read that after he had to leave the show, 115 people rang up Ofcom, the UK broadcasting regulator, to complain about it, which is a very British sort of compliment. So Jürgen, welcome to the podcast. It's a great pleasure to speak to you. Hi, Oliver. Really happy to be here. Why don't we go straight to the hard questions? Um, I have here in front of me, if I can just gracefully switch tabs for a second, the results of a survey of 1,028 Germans carried out a year ago by Statista's Global Consumer Survey. And they were asked what they typically eat at Christmas. And the results were pretty educational for, for me as a, as a sort of person living in Germany. Would you like to hear the stats? Yes, I think potato salad is high up, isn't it? Oh, yes. <laughs> but let's, let's start with the snacks. Um, so the most popular snack item in Germany at Christmas, uh, in consuming 54% of German households, is biscuits. So sort of speculatius, um, vanilla kipferl, which is a, a kind of traditional crescent-shaped biscuit flavoured with vanilla and that sort of thing. Then you've got um, Lebkuchen on 44%, followed by chocolate father Christmases on 40%, Stollen on 36%, nuts on 34%, and then Dominosteiner, which is kind of little cubic layer cakes covered in a chocolate ganache on 28%. So Jürgen, I'd like to start by asking what confectionery is served in the Klaus household at Christmas? And most importantly, do you bake it yourself? Um, yes, sure. I'm baking it myself. Um, I made stolen in the past years. I actually shipped stolen to America, to our relatives and to Germany, to my parents and my brother who lives in Switzerland. I'm not baking huge amounts. So no way as much as I bake together with my brother and my mother when we all live together in my childhood home. But I certainly bake some confectionery. Vanilla kipfel are very, uh, very popular and Zimtsterne as well, cinnamon stars. Lebkuchen, I did Lebkuchen hearts and more the Scandinavian type Lebkuchen, partly um, for my son to take to school and also for some winter fairs at school to the Lebkuchen house and Lebkuchen locomotive. There is a debate raging at the moment in Anglo-German social media circles about whether it is ever acceptable to eat Stollen with cheese. Do you have a position on this <laughs> burning question of the day? Well, personally, I wouldn't, but I wouldn't utter any recommendations. <laughs> very sensible. <laughs> um, and as you very astutely anticipated, um, for me, the real surprises were in the, the kind of main dishes. Um, so I'll go through them in reverse order for dramatic effect. Um, so first of all, we have fondue on 13%, raclette on 23%, roast goose, also 23%, roast duck, 28%. And in first place, we have um, Würstchen and Kartoffelsalat. So basically, frankfurters and potato salad. 
what's going on here, Jürgen? How did Frankfurters become a mainstay of German Christmas? And is, is this something that you go for as well? Uh, I'm not so sure about the Frankfurters. I've been in the UK for almost 20 years, no, 20 years now. So I probably missed some of the fashions. We visit my parents regularly at Christmas, but uh, we continue somehow in the tradition of my childhood home. Usually on the 24th, Christmas Eve, we had carp. My father went fishing and there was always a carp around. And it's very traditional in Germany to have carp on the 24th. Goose was not so much a tradition in our household. I think the first goose I ate was when I was 18 or something like that. Usually on the 25th, Kartoffelsalat featured or some kind of roast, some some nice cut of pork or rabbit. And another hot button question in the food culture wars would be whether you make your Kartoffelsalat with mayonnaise or with vinegar. Um, in our household, it would be vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I, I'm fully on board with that. Since you've been living in Britain, are there any British Christmas traditions that you your family has adopted? Well, I think it kind of mingles. I have, on, for the 25th, I have been making uh, the traditional turkey roasts with all the trimmings. So that has become a tradition. Although our household in the, in the last few years, uh, we oriented more towards the Jewish tradition. My wife is Jewish and her family. And my son wanted a bar mitzvah, so he led the way to uh, Jewish spiritualism. So we are now celebrating more Hanukkah than Christmas. We will celebrate Christmas with my parents, but somehow the Christmas tree fell victim to that, <laughs> which is all right. <laughs> and what about the whole kind of palaver of, of British culture in the run up to and during Christmas too? Have you sort of started watching Die Hard or, or The Snowman as a, as a ritual? Well, we watched The Snowman a lot when my son was little. I really enjoyed that. Otherwise, a lot of the British traditions are still quite foreign to me. Such as? Such as Christmas pudding, carol singing. There is singing in Germany, but not this kind of, uh, kind of program. Everyone goes out and sings together. The commercial side, the glitzy side of things, which has taken over Germany to a large extent as well. Christmas markets in Britain, they always feel odd. <laughs> How do you find them? Is there one in Brighton? Which, which ones do you go to, if, if any? We pass by rather than go to. I haven't been to Christmas Wonderland in Hyde Park, for example. It feels strange to me. Food is incredibly expensive, which it probably has to be being imported and being foreign to, to British traditions. And other than that, it's... No, it, it just feels strange to me. We're really um, spoiled for Christmas markets here in, in Berlin. I live in Schoenberg and a couple of streets away mm -hmm. in um, Nollendorfplatz. There's a very famous mm -hmm. um, LGBTQ Christmas market with a sort of uh -huh. very strong gay theme. And um, it's, mm -hmm. it's really good fun. Although um, I have to steer my two small kids who are three and four years old away from looking at some of the toys sometimes. <laughs> But my favourite Christmas market in Germany, um, I have to say, is um, Schwerin, the capital Schwerin. of um, Mecklenburg, West Pomerania, um, where at Christmas time the, the whole city is transformed into a sort of, I mean, it already looks quite Disneylandy, but it just becomes like, a, like another world. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, I have I've been to Dresden, I think, 
And other than that, I know Christmas markets of Frankfurt, Freiburg, of course, where I come from. I've been to Nuremberg and Oldenburg in Oldenburg, where I lived as well for, for a while, and Cologne. I suppose British Christmas must seem like a, a, a quite a strange hybrid of the familiar and the alien. I, I, I find the history of it absolutely fascinating because it used to be back in the kind of Middle Ages and the, the Tudor era, a really kind of um, classic pagan winter festival with just a kind of thin veneer of Christianity on the top. So in, in a lot of, especially in wealthier households, you'd have someone appointed called the Lord of Misrule, or in Scotland, he was known as the, um, the Abbot of Unreason. And they had these kind of um, quasi-dictatorial powers to order anyone in the household to do pretty much anything in the name of fun. And it used to get really out of hand. And then when Oliver Cromwell came along in the 1650s as a sort of serious crackdown on all of this, uh, this revelry, and he, he sort of got a reputation for banning Christmas, but, but really, I mean, he was just banning sort of these kind of loud, loutish behaviour. And then from the kind of 1700s and especially into the 1800s, because we ordered in our, our monarchs from Germany, we started acquiring all of these German Christmas traditions, the, the advent calendar, the Christmas tree. Father Christmas is a, is a German import. And so the end result is something that, that feels very much like a German Christmas in a lot of ways, but still with this kind of um, slightly riotous undertone. How does, how does it feel to you? I haven't experienced the riotous undertone. That sounds interesting, almost like the German carnival traditions. But I'm aware of, of this import, but then the import of Father Christmas. In Germany, we have Christkind, so little Jesus bringing the presents. Something shifted there. I think it was in the 19th century. It's probably still in the Netherlands as it used to be in the 17th century in Germany, where you get the presents on Santa Claus Day. In the Black Forest, while I grew up, we had Santa Claus coming to the house. But that was a rather scary moment because he brought with him Knecht Ruprecht, kind of his manservant. And traditionally, Santa Claus was dressed up as a bishop, reading from a big book, knowing all your sins, all the bad stuff you've done during the year. And then Knecht Ruprecht would carry a cane. You, you got these canes to buy in the shops which had little chocolate parcels hanging from them. So a very odd thing of punishment and sweet at the same time. <laughs> so quite, I'm not sure they sell them still. Almost literally the stick and the carrot. The stick and the carrot, absolutely. So it, it was extraordinary. And so the main Christmas event in Germany is on uh, Christmas Eve, where you get the presents. In the old days, so when my mother was a child, uh, you would go to church and then get your presents afterwards. And then in my day, it was uh, getting the presents after supper, after this meal with carp, etc. And that, that was the big thing to look forward to. The um, Christmas, just after I'd found out we were going to be moving to Germany, I was very excited. And um, I decided I would try and cook a proper German Christmas meal. Um, so I looked up some recipes from the Süddeutsche Zeitung for mm -hmm. a kind of what was supposedly a classic Swabian Christmas. I'm never quite clear on where the borders of Swabia are. Is, is Freiburg in Swabia or not quite? No, not. <laughs> okay. Freiburg is Baden and there's a, a big rivalry. Oh, really? Sorry. Well, yes. I'm, glad I didn't, um, <laughs> I'm glad I didn't quite put my foot in my mouth there as, as much as I could have done. So the, it, was a, it was a kind of um, venison ragu with um, semolina dumplings and hordkohl and caramelised 
chestnuts and then a streusel cake at the end. And I was in the kitchen for, I think about nine hours, pretty much all of Christmas day. And at the end, the, the result was nice. I don't know if it was nine hours worth of nice, but it's something I've often noticed about German cooking, that in comparison to the kind of British cookery I grew up with, it can be very kind of technical and time consuming. And I'm curious to hear whether you think that, that that's a fair observation, sort of comp- contrasting the cuisine cultures of the two countries, and if it um, is anything that's kind of influenced your approach to baking. Well, I think all the cuisines in the world have this technical aspect as well as the more improvised aspect. And I think in our household, well, the household of my childhood, both aspects lived together, certainly around Christmas or other holidays. It got more technical if you want. There are things I like to eat and I've never made because so far they were too technical. For example, sauerbraten, which is... I don't know if you could call it fermented, fermented meat. <laughs> but there, there are also a lot of fast food items that are easy to make, like uh, potato salad or the, the frit, potato fritters that are eaten around the world or around Europe, at least. Latkas in the Jewish world, the Hungarians have it. They exist in all sorts of variations and are rather quick and tasty. So. And I would think Christmas pudding is rather technical. Christmas pudding is technical. I would definitely grant you that. And the turkey with all the trimmings is quite technical. And I'm not sure seven hours, but five hours I spent in the kitchen on, on days when I prepare for this Christmas mm-hmm. lunch. My, um, my personal bogeyman in German cuisine is um, Grüner Soße, uh, which is a, a kind of delicacy from, from Frankfurt. Oh, yes. Um, that's recommended to me by a friend from, from Hessen. And so I decided to make it for them and found out you need seven different herbs Um, it didn't take that long to make but it was just such an extraordinary faff yeah it's it's one thing i actually want to popularize in england i just didn't get around to it yet because i really love it i love that taste i lived in frankfurt for seven years and obviously the cuisine of hasia left some impressions so the seven herbs i'm not sure if i could get all of them in england during summer, it adds such an unusual color to the food and has really nice taste. So probably around May, June, <laughs> I might be posting about that. <laughs> if I've got this right, I, th- I think you moved to the UK in, in 2003? I think 2002 it was. Okay, so more or less 20 years ago. What was it that brought you there? And um, how did you find it at first? I had a job uh, in an IT company that was an outsourcing essentially of a big Swiss bank and I was pretty bored. At the time I was still in a training to become a teacher in some kind of movement therapy. So I, I looked for possibilities to to go to a course and uh, that course in Lewis was on offer. So I went over in my holidays and there I met a woman who I would marry. So it was love that brought me to England or the UK. But I had always felt close to the UK in a funny way. When I was at primary school, a German nurse who had been in London for several years gave us English lessons privately in a very conversational way. So somehow English language felt always natural to me. I I didn't make a fuss of it. I wasn't even aware of it. But uh, studying physics and reading papers in English, I didn't have problems with that. 
And when I went to music courses, I started dreaming in English, which was a funny experience. I went to a school exchange. We went to the Lake District on a family holiday. And England looked somewhat exotic to me, very different architecture from Germany. And everything is a bit old and a bit um, crumbly in a way, but very appealing to me. I lived in different places in Germany, and um, in those places, I almost felt like an expert more than I feel in England, which is also interesting. So when you when you were in um, Offenburg, for, ex- for example, you felt that the, the, the cultural distance was, was greater? In, in Oldenburg, Oldenburg in Oldenburg, which is oh, sorry, in the Oldenburg, far north. I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. Yes, the cultural distance was almost greater for me than the cultural distance to England. That's fascinating. I'd, I'd like to hear a bit more about how you found speaking English in, in, in your daily life, because clearly many, many Germans get a really excellent grounding in the English language through the school system. What was interesting to me was that's partly related to class. <laughs> the most extreme is probably listening to parliamentary debates, <laughs> how MPs interact with Mr. Speaker. But yes, language in England diff- definitely has uh, several purposes. And, and there's so much idiomatic material. I think I'm on the way to abduct- adapting some of it. I understand more of it, but it's pretty endless. It's probably the other way around if English people go to Germany as well. I don't know how you find that in Berlin. Even for me, coming from the Black Forest, going to Berlin, they had different idiomatic structures. I spent some time in Berlin during my physics studies doing an experiment there. So I don't know how is your experience. Well, Berlin German is a, is a funny phenomenon, I think, because the kind of classic Berlin dialect is not something that you encounter every day if you're out and about in the city, because it's, it, in the meantime, I think more than 50% of the population come from somewhere else and so it's quite a sort of nationalized or even internationalized form of german that's usually spoken so you still get strong elements of it for example the the yacht instead of the the gear but i wouldn't say that it's that kind of dominant in the way that it might have been uh 40 or, or 50 years ago and I'd, I'd love to ask how you found the food culture in those early years in Britain, not just kind of particular foods that, that seemed appealing or, or the opposite, but also the way that the British cook and eat as, as compared to what you had grown up with in Germany. That's kind of hard to answer because I think it changed just before, arrived in, before I arrived in Britain. When I was on exchange and on my holiday with my parents, there were no cafes with, with chairs on the streets, etc. I think it's what much more as people imagine Britain when they talk of bad English cuisine and that sort of thing. Talking of that, I always enjoyed my food. I had at the home of my exchange student or or the places we went when I was there with my family. I didn't have any bad experiences. Triangular sandwiches with egg and cress was something (laughs) I didn't encounter in Germany. I like that. It's it's nice flavor combinations. But when I moved to England, everything looked different. It might just be that I came to the south 
Lewis and Brighton with their very active cultures and very international connections. But I think it, in the north as well, things changed a lot. A cafe culture, which is almost like Parisian or, or Italian, had a great influence. So therefore, it's it's hard for me to to recognize something archetypical British that remains there. It seems Britain had adopted a lot of European culture, especially in the food and gastronomy areas. I think I think maybe that is in itself something quite distinctive about British food culture, just how kind of protean it is and how kind of open to influences and, and almost kind of hungry for novelty British consumers can be. Yeah, that's, that's possible. That would explain all these cooking shows, wouldn't it? It might well do that. One of the biggest gastronomic bones of contention between me and my German friends is bread. Mm-hmm. I know the Germans are, are very proud of their bread making and yeah. all the regional traditions in particular. And there are some elements of it I really admire. For example, the the idea that, that pretty much every kitchen would have a bread slicing machine in it was 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 a, kind of a magical discovery. And I really like the, the distinction in German supermarkets between toastport, which are these kind of square leaf, square loaves of bread that are designed for toasters, and then actual port that you, you, you would eat. But I'm also very, I'm, I'm, quite, a, I'm quite a bread nationalist. I think, I think British bread gets a bad rap and the granary loaf is, is, is a pretty fine phenomenon. So at the risk of provoking a, a small Anglo-German war, how, how have you found British bread? If, if we look at British artisan bread, that's great. It's really different from German artisan bread. Uh, we're talking about cottage loaves and bloomers made the traditional way with the three-stage fermentation that takes 18 hours or something like that. I looked a bit into the history of, of British bread when there was a school fair which was Joshua Island themed. So I decided to do a bread class with the primary children, looked into the history, um, what kind of bread was eaten in the countryside. And there's a huge variety, just as it is in Germany, because Wales, Devon, Scotland, it's all different grains that grow there. And therefore, the bread was very different in these areas. It kind of got all pushed towards the white bread uh, in the 17th, 18th century, mainly with the effects of sugar trade and everyone becoming a bit more wealthy and striving to eat what the noblemen eat, which was white bread, manchet bread, it was called. And this variety remained up until the Second World War. In the Second World War, there was austerity bread. So there was a, (laughs) almost like in Stalinist Russia, if I may say, uh, the government ordered the bakers to only do one special kind of bread, which is very close to the granary bread. And you only could buy that bread stale, otherwise you would throw away the stale bread. British population was never that healthy. And after the Second World War, there was a big nationalization or or, um, unification of, of bread making, milling, baking. So a lot of the artisan bakers of the day disappeared in favor of factories that produced what we know as Mother's Pride Square White Loaf. Of course, over the last decade or so, it goes backwards towards artisan bread. So the Square Loaf, I won't tell you my opinion about that. But British (laughs) British artisan bread is very varied and great. 
One reason I know about why Germany has such a huge variety of bread um, is in the trade system and in the apprenticeship system. In order to become a master baker, you have to design your own bread. So <laughs> every generation of bakers will have a number of new breads appearing. And of course, they will remain in, in what bakeries make. So 3,000 different kinds of bread on the shelves. It's set to grow if Germany doesn't change its system. And um, so how was it that as a non-professionally qualified master baker, you came to apply for the Great British Bake Off? Well, uh, I missed German bread at some point, so I started looking into that. Funny enough, the journey to German bread went via American books. I found that the Americans, um, especially one American baker, uh, Jeff, Jeffrey Hamelman, was eager to win, to win the bread championship in Paris. So he traveled around, learned about English baking, about German baking, etc., and uh, put his knowledge into a fantastic book, which has the foundation of German baking in it as well. So via America, I came to make German bread. And of course, I didn't only make bread. I got questions about pastries and cakes, etc. And at one point, 2013 or so, my wife convinced me to apply for the Bake Off for the first time. I had a moustache for November, looked terrible and wasn't in it with my heart. I applied, I applied literally on the last second <laughs> of the, of the um, deadline and didn't get a call, which I was very relieved about. But the nagging went on. Colleagues at work were nagging me to apply again. And um, I saw how much Bake Off contributed during the pandemic really uh, helping people to get on with their lives during this very restricted time. So I decided to apply. Maybe I, I could give something. And yeah, it worked. And how did you find it? The, the, not just the, the, the actual baking competition, but also the, the level of media exposure that, that came with it. Uh, the media exposure, that was actually the thing I was most worried about before. I do enjoy it. I, I was playing music for a while quite regularly and I always enjoyed being on stage and being in the tent on the Bake Off. It was performing for the camera, which was new to me. There was some kind of direct interaction with the cameraman and the production crew, but nothing like a live audience. So that felt very strange. And then having it come out almost three months later, on TV and getting all this attention, that felt somehow like the re resolution to what I did in the tent. So I really enjoy that. And the feedback is so overwhelmingly positive still. Do you, I mean, do, you, um, do people sort of recognize you in Tesco and, th and things like that? And they do recognize me. Goodness me. It depends where I am. It also depends a bit um, what happened on the TV just before. I think a lot of people recognize me and won't talk to me about it. Sometimes I can see, I get a glance and then people walking away. Uh, there seems to be one particular corner in Brighton where tourists recognize me regularly <laughs> uh, at Old Stein at the traffic lights. I had that a few times. We came to Brighton, we thought we'd meet Jürgen and there you are. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love the idea that people might be coming to Brighton for the sole purpose of running into you. That's, yeah. that's very um, that's a very big gamble. It is, yes. You know, they, they probably look at a few things like the pavilion and go gambling on the pier. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're probably just about out of time, but it's been um, it's been a great pleasure talking to you, Jürgen. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. And thank you also to everyone who's been listening to this podcast. Mm, thank you very much. Great pleasure. Thank you. All right. That's it from us. Goodbye. <laughs>